0: Okay, so the applause didn't last long enough for me to get up here, so. That was pretty cheap, wasn't it? They're used to it, I'm their pastor. Yeah, that's right. If you don't mind, I'm going to use this to uh, hold some accompanying notes. And let me get started. I bring you greetings from... uh, Midway Community Church in Alpharetta, Georgia. I actually live in Cumming, Georgia, which is about as far north as you can get and still be the Atlanta area. Uh, So, God bless you. Uh, Now, if this looks familiar to you, it's because I'm modeled. (laughs) Come on. That's the guy that was at our church Sunday morning. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was really hard because I had to stand still for such a long time and stuff. So, today we're going to talk about uh, on building a worldview, on building a worldview. Now, just let me give my apologies to those of you who are here for the weekend and already heard all my jokes and heard some of them more than once, okay, so they're going to be peppered. Uh, I can't help it. It just kind of comes out of me, sort of like my hair came out of me at some point uh, a long time ago. If you will, though, open your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. You're going to see some PowerPoint slides, uh, but there are a lot of slides in this presentation, or at least some, that are hidden for the sake of time and 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 other uh, things that are not particularly germane to some of the stuff we want to do this morning. But I do want to tell you where you can get a PDF of these uh, slides and the ones that are hidden. So if you go to, you'll have to go to my website uh, there. Wait a minute, we need dramatic music there as as that part. Talk about being on the beach. I look like I was kind of on the beach there. But you go to richardghow.com. And then you'll see at the top uh, where there uh, the tabs, you see the resource tab up there blinking. So you click on that, it'll give you four choices. The one that's relevant for this presentation is the PDF deck. So what I do is I take the PowerPoint and make a PDF document out of all the slides, and you can get those. So when you click on that, it'll take you to a page that just all these alphabetized PDF decks from all kinds of talks that I do. Now, uh, For some of these, in fact, for all of these at some point or another, sometimes the PDF deck might not make sense without the accompaniment lecture. So I do that so people will maybe have me come, what was was that lecture on? I got your PDF deck, but it doesn't make sense. You go, well, you have to have me back uh, to, to your church. So you'll want to find this one on building a worldview, on building a worldview. Matthew 22, verse 37 Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and with all of your mind. I was inspired to think along the contours of how being a Christian somehow obligates me to some extent with reference to my mind. I was inspired by that by one of my mentors and heroes, you know, when you read books and people have big, big influence on you by J.P. Moreland, some of you perhaps are familiar with J.P. Moreland. He's a Christian philosopher from, from uh, Biola, uh, the graduate school out there, teaches apologetics. And his book, particularly his book, Love Your God With All Your Mind, and the subtitle, if you can't see that, is The Role of Reason in the life of the soul. Now, I can't blame Dr. Morland for any given thing that I might say this morning, but I do recommend the book, particularly the chapter in there, I think the chapter is titled, How We Lost the Christian Mind. And what he does in a very succinct fashion is, is uh, uh, rehearse the history from say the late 19th through the 20th century of events in American Christianity the cumulative effect of which is that by the, uh, after the onset of the Second World War in the 1940s and 50s and later, you began to see that American Christianity, with notable exceptions, but generally speaking, American Christianity had developed this very anti-intellectual kind of frame of mind. Probably one of the main sources of that kind of trend was that in the late 19th century, and the early 20th century, a lot of uh, parents were seeing their Christian children going off to university only to be disabused of their Christian faith at university because they were encountering things like Darwinism, which seemed to conflict with Genesis, they were encountering skeptical treatments of the Bible. Hey, it really wasn't written by this guy, and it was really a, the, uh, you know, a product of a lot of authors and redactors and editors, and so it's not really historically reliable. And, and they were getting these kind of things from the university. <clears throat> the problem was that too, in too many instances, the Christians in America were, were saying, well, the problem is higher education. The problem is the universities. Now that was a problem for, to be sure, but it wasn't in principle, the higher education and the universities, because what should have happened is that the Christian church should, have, uh, should just rise to the occasion and try to answer the arguments of the Darwinists and evolutionists and the higher critics and the skeptics. But instead, with notable exceptions, what generally happened in the onset of the 20th century up through the Second World War and, be, and a little bit beyond was that Christians began to withdraw from the university and start our own universities, Bible colleges and things. Now there's a lot of those that are really solid and had nothing to do with this trend that Moreland is talking about. But a lot of these colleges, they were characterized by a curriculum that was just the Bible. So we weren't teaching history, we weren't teaching logic, and we weren't teaching philosophy, and we weren't teaching the hard sciences. People were just learning the Bible. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, except that it began to make people think, well, maybe that's all you just need is a Bible, and you don't need to know any other facts about God's creation. And it developed this sort of anti-intellectualism that we're still, I think, suffering from in in many respects. So, I wanna just address that here in in these few moments together, in terms of uh, building a worldview, whatever that means. And I submit to you that from Matthew 27, thir- 22, 37, that there's a meaningful sense in which using our minds is a matter of stewardship. I'm not suggesting everybody has to go out and get a PhD, uh, okay, the way Dr. Carver has done, all right? Or the way I have done and others, that's, that's not it at all. We all have different measures of faith, we all have different callings, we all have different gifts. So, so thankfully, not everybody needs to be an academic. Can you imagine what the world would be like if everybody was an academic? We'd all be falling in some ditch somewhere, probably. <laughs> what happened to all the infrastructure? It all fell apart It's because everybody's in a ditch somewhere. They can't figure out how to get out of, of the ditch. But you know, if you're like me, most of the time if I hear the word stewardship, I think of stewardship of my money in, in giving to the local church and supporting ministries and supporting missionaries in these kinds. which is great, right? But again, I wanna to submit to you, there's a meaningful sense in which we are called to be stewards of our mind. Whatever that means in your particular calling, whatever sphere of influence God's put in your life, whatever that translates into. So to, to uh, be a steward of the mind obligates us to certain things. Now let me give you my, my uh, uh, elevator version testimony, you know, where you get it down to so you can share it in an elevator before everybody gets to their floor or, or something. Uh, I was born at a very young age, and to my embarrassment, I was born completely naked. I'm sorry to have to, it was embarrassing, I know. Now, when I was born, doctors doctor said, you know what, it, it, I couldn't talk or walk. The doctor said, it might be a year. <laughs> so, here I stand before you today. There's, there's a, that's a, it's, a, it's a crazy, it's, it's just wonderful. Now, I was born and reared in Mississippi, so I'm sorry to hear about the Pirate's this weekend, so my condolences there. Uh, the Rebels, the old Miss Rebels actually won, so I know better than to gloat over somebody else's loss when you're an old Miss fan. You have to, you, know, you, don't, you learn not to do those kind of things. But here's the odd thing. Having been born and reared in the quote Bible Belt, of which we are all part of, all through the Southeast, I never heard the gospel as a child that I can remember. I wasn't raised in the church, my parents were loving, hardworking, but we didn't go to church, and I never, I always believed in the existence of God as a child, but I never, I never knew anything about who Jesus was or what he had done for me. I was led to Christ by friends of mine in high school, 16 years old. We actually had these things called campus life meetings at the public high school in Tupelo, Mississippi, and I would go on Tuesday nights. And they helped me understand who Jesus was, what he had done for me, my need for a Savior, and how I needed to trust him to be reconciled to God because I had been separated from God for my sin. And I needed that reconciliation that only Jesus could affect because of what he did for me on the cross. So I'm 16 years old, I'm a long-haired hippie, kinda, as much as you can be a hippie in both Mississippi and the 70s, because that was a little late, whatever. And I'm a drummer, of all things. So I was kinda disappointed there wasn't a drummer. I was tempted to come up and bang on the box up here or something, but then we'd all get out early probably if I started doing that. So I go off to college, and I went to our, now don't hold this against me, I'm Southern Baptist, okay? Which actually, you know, there are more Southern Baptists in the South than there are people. So, <laughs> that's how many of us there are. Because <laughs> I'm on like six church rolls, I think, somewhere throughout Mississippi or whatever. So I, I go to our flagship Southern Baptist College in Mississippi, I lose my faith because the Bible department, the religion department was very liberal. And I never, I wasn't prepared for this when I went off to college. My church didn't say anything about, hey, when you get there, you're going to find these, these people that are skeptical about this book wasn't written by that author, and Isaiah didn't write the book of Isaiah, and 2 Peter shouldn't be in your Bible, and Paul hijacked the message of Jesus and turned it into some kind of message. I was hearing all this from the religion department in my, my college, so I lost my faith. I mean, I lost my, 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 my confidence in the truth of it. Uh, It was apologetics that brought me back to the Lord through uh, the ministry of apologists like Norman Geisler, perhaps you've heard of him, or R.C. Sproul or Josh McDowell, largely through their tape, their cassette tape ministry. Cassette tapes are these little plastic things. They're about this size of a credit card, just in case for the students here that, what's a cassette tape? Uh, Something that Neanderthals used to carry around or something. So, in summarizing, well, gee, what did apologetics do? And, and, and I can tell you over the meal why I went into philosophy more specifically. Probably want to wait for that story till after you've already eaten, because <laughs> you might lose your appetite if I'm trying to tell you about philosophy while you're eating. Uh, but uh, how did apologetics do that? Can, can, in some respects, be summarized by this whole uh, imagery of a worldview, whatever that means. Uh, and we'll see what it is as we go along and try to build one. So, a couple of interesting and I think relevant main points about this whole idea of quote building a worldview. When I first put this presentation together and this talk together years ago, I'd actually use had actually used the word on choosing a worldview. But it wasn't very long into the prep. When I realized, no, that's exactly what I don't mean. I don't mean choosing a worldview the way if you're going to, hey, we're remodeling our kitchen, so we're building a new kitchen in our house. And so you go to the, uh, to the uh, you know, home improvement store and you choose different things. I'm going to choose this backsplash t- you know, color and this, this uh, countertop you know, material. And you're choosing all these things to, quote, build your kitchen. I don't mean that. I don't mean that we build a worldview by merely choosing certain elements to believe that comprise our view of the nature of reality, which is kind of what a worldview is. Often when I have, and I've grown more sensitive to this, when I hear speakers talk about worldview or I read books talk about worldview, 99 times out of 10, as we would say in Mississippi, okay, they use this illustration of the glasses, you know, this metaphor of, well, a worldview is like putting on glasses. And so if you put on rose-colored glasses, for example, then everything's gonna have a rose tint to it. And so that's what a worldview is like, you know. So you got you a Christian worldview and you got the atheist worldview, the humanist and the new age and all these kind of different quote-unquote worldviews and they're all different ways of looking at the world and seeing the world a certain way. Now, uh, that even translates into religious choices, doesn't it? I mean, different religions are often thought of as worldviews. You know, how he's a Hindu? Well, he's got a Hindu worldview, or Buddhist, or or Sikh, or Taoist, or New Age, or, or whatever it is. The problem I have, by the way, this idea that these are different ways of looking at the world is known in some of the literature as perspectivism. That's the new word for today. I try to say that without spitting on the person you're talking to. Perspectivism, have to be careful with that. What is perspectivism? It's the notion that everyone has their own perspective about the world and that nobody's perspective is any more or less legitimate than anybody else's. We all have our perspective. That's what the coexist bumper sticker is supposed to be, right? It's implying somehow, well, everybody's got their view, everybody's got their religion or no religion, and so live and let live, okay, that's fine. There's really only one on that coexist, coexist sticker that insists on not coexisting with everybody else. That's what's interesting about the sticker. Everybody on that sticker that's represented all the religions, we pretty much all get along except for the Muslims. They're the only ones that, don't, that insist on not doing there's a reason for that, by the way, which we can talk about on another occasion. But there's some problems with perspectivism as I sneak up more and more on, well, what do you mean by worldview? At least two problems I, I see. First is, Uh, How can you choose a worldview without being affected by your own worldview and making your choice? If your worldview, if it's it's your perspective on the world, if that's what it is, then obviously your perspective on the world will affect whatever it is you think you need to choose to construct your own worldview or your own perspective. So you're sitting there doing this, you know. (laughs) Uh, If I already have a perspective, then that perspective, according to this model, would just affect what I view and how I view the things that I'm choosing to construct my perspective on the world. It's a circular and sometimes self-refuting. There's a problem with perspectivism. Second, and more important for us, don't we really want more from a worldview than just merely the fact that we just chose it? I mean, we celebrate the fact that as Americans, we can choose our religion so far. We celebrate that. A lot of places in the world, you can't. If you don't choose the right religion, you can be executed. So we celebrate that. But just like our religion, don't we want more from it than just the fact that we have the freedom to choose it? It's not like a buffet where you can, hey, you can have whatever you want off the buffet, and you, you, you like that. There's something more that this worldview needs to give us, or indeed, we look for it to give us. So you go back to the glasses illustration. Because the challenge here, it seems to me, is that the illustration is misleading. I mean, I understand, put on rose-colored glasses, everything's rose-colored. I get that. So you have a certain perspective, and it affects the way you view the world. I understand that. I don't deny that that can be the case. The problem is, though, When you go to the optometrist or the ophthalmologist in the real world, in real glasses, you don't go to the eye doctor to get glasses in order to see the world a certain way. That's not why you go, is it? In in terms of what real glasses do. So, I I mean, if that was the case, I'd say, well, how would you like to see the world? I don't know, you got some glasses that gives everybody hair or something. I'd look in the mirror and go, oh, cool, 20 again. You know, or 19 maybe, I was already going bald by 20. So, oh, what are you? I'd like to see everything twice as big. Is it? Oh, okay, this is the twice as big. Ooh, That's cool. That's not, so you don't just look and you go, look at all these glasses. You got the Hindu glasses in there. Which one do you like? Oh, I mean, that's not what you do. In the real world, the reason you get glasses is because something is wrong with my vision and I'm not seeing the world. Correctly. So what do glasses do? Glasses actually enable me to see the world the way it really is. I'm not seeing the world by a certain perspective. These correct my vision so that what I end up being able to see is that's the way the world really is. And so I would submit to you the first thing that a worldview is obligated to do, in fact, this is surely what we would want from a worldview, is to tell us the truth about reality. Whether that reality is, we're talking about God or or politics or morals or whatever it is. Well, if that's the case, and I think it's undeniably the case, we want our worldview to be true, it immediately raises the question, well, what is the nature of truth? And by the way, another apology I owe to some of you who uh, came to our conference here. That's called a dramatic pause. They're, they're very effective. But don't try it at home because I'm a professional. So, you know, you want to be careful. You don't throw in a dramatic pause at the wrong time. and people turn around, and walk away. Oh, well, no, no, it wasn't done. That was just a dramatic pause. Uh. But my apology is that some of this is some stuff that we touched on during the conference, so maybe you'll have to hear it more than once or maybe you'll enjoy hearing it more than once. But it raises the question, well then, what is the nature of truth? When we say something is true, uh, what is the nature of truth? Well, there's two things regarding the issue of truth that I think is important for us to distinguish. And that's the difference between uh, a theory of truth and a test for truth. A theory of truth and a test for truth. What's a theory of truth? Well, a theory of truth is basically how you define the term true or truth when you're saying that something is true. So if somebody said, you know, hey, it's raining, is that true? Yeah, Well, whatever you're saying about that statement when you said it was true, whatever that is, and believe it or not, there are lots of different opinions out there, but that's your theory of truth, how one defines truth. A test for truth is how you discover whether a statement is true, regardless of what you mean by truth. So it's the difference between defining and, de- and discovering. The definition of truth, the discovery of truth. That's what truth is. And we have to say something about each of these in just a real quick fashion. So let me start out by just saying a few words about a, a theory of truth. And you'll also hear a concept of truth or something to that effect. Now, maybe you can guess from my color scheme of these probably relatively unfamiliar terms, which one I favor. And we, in my class, we go into detail about these and perhaps other quote-unquote theories of truth that the students would learn at the university if they took a philosophy class. And, and I warn people typically that when you end up, I end up making my punchline, it's something that, well, we kind of knew that already, uh, more than likely. It's more or less commonsensical. Yeah, it is were it not for this deleterious and adverse effect that the uh, bad philosophies and bad religions are having in our culture that's introducing these foreign kind of notions. So you'll see what I mean here in a moment. Uh, I think truth has to be correspondence. That is correspondence to reality. That if I say it's raining and it's not raining in reality, then what I said was false. But if I say it's raining and it is raining in reality, then what I said is true. So I love the way Aristotle said this. So maybe this is the first time Aristotle, I don't know if you quote Aristotle as often as you can, Pastor, but I'm sneaking him in here. At least you said I was going to bring up some philosophy. So Aristotle says it this way. Uh, to say of what is that it is not or what is not that it is is false, while to say of what is that it is or what is not that it is not is true. Amen. <laughs> Okay? I'm threatening to put this on a, you know, like people have, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord cross-stitch, hanging in their house. I want this cross-stitch hanging, just so people come over and go, what in the world? And also, you want to be careful, because this is what happens to you if you study philosophy too much. (laughs) It's what my students look like about halfway through the semester. They're all just glazed over. So, what is he saying? If you say it is and it is, then it's true. If you say it ain't and it ain't, then then it's true. If you say it is and it ain't, then it's false. If you say it ain't and it is, it's false. He's just saying statements that correspond to reality are true statements. That's, that's all he's saying. Now, there's a lot more to say about, well, what about other ways that something can correspond? We did this in the conference, different ways that you can, quote, unquote, correspond to reality. You can, you can speak in various figures of speech and metaphor and simile and metonymies and synecdoches and, you know, these kind of fun things. But the bottom line is correspondence to reality is the hallmark of truth but at least one other theory of truth plagues us more and more as americans and we have to contend with this as we're sharing the gospel with our friends because here's the here's the challenge that your your podium will just drop that's and see if i had the right worldview it wouldn't have done that here's the challenge you go to somebody and and you're talking about your faith And uh, the the issue of whether what you're saying is true or not, you know, you say the Bible is true, whatever. The challenge is, more and more in our culture, I think, we run the risk of encountering someone that when we say that we think the Bible is true, they don't even understand what we mean. They think something completely different because they're not thinking correspondence to reality. They've got other notions of truth. And so if we're not sort of, uh anticipating that pro- that probability then there's the danger that we could spend all this energy defending that the bible is true and that the gospel is true and and it's totally lost on our hearer because they're way out in left field they never understood what we even meant when we said it's true what could possibly be an example of this probably the one that plagues us the most is this pragmatic theory of truth basically a pragmatic theory of truth says well, whatever uh, works in your life, whatever does it for you, that's your truth. You, you might hear this, the, the phrase, well, that's true for you, but that's not true for me. In fact, that's actually the title of a book, uh, True for You, but Not for Me, deflating the slogans that leave Christians speechless. It's actually been republished with a different subtitle, True for You, but Not for Me, overcoming objections to the Christian faith. Paul Copan, uh, a, a good friend and a, a Christian philosopher and apologist. And so they act like this is a, 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 just a matter of personal taste. Well, if Jesus does it for you, I'm happy for you. But he doesn't really do it for me because it doesn't work in my life. And, and, and then they just they go on. They don't, they, so they, when they hear you arguing the Bible is true, they keep, trying, they keep thinking you're just trying to tell them, well, just try Jesus and see how he works in your life. And sometimes I've heard Christians frame the gospel that way. Well, just try Jesus and see what he can do. He can balance your checkbook, and He can heal your marriage and He can. Well, yeah, these things can happen, but that's not what we mean when we say it's true. That's an implication of the fact that it's true. That's not what it is to be true. What it is to be true is that the gospel is real. It's it's pointing to something true about reality. There really is a God that exists and He really did incarnate in Jesus Christ. And He really did die for our sins and rise from the dead and give us eternal life. He really did do these things. Now, I'll just mention this, but I'm gonna pass over it for the sake of time. But I, I told you there are really two questions about truth. One is uh, theory of truth, and the other was the tests. Well, what about tests for truth? And we talk a lot, a lot about this in, in my, uh, my classes. So by the way, I'm teaching a class this October that you can sign up for, you can take it synchronously on the internet, asynchronously after the fact. You can come to the campus, and uh, in fact, about halfway through the semester, usually my students just want to pay tuition a second time. They're like, oh, this is just, this is, I guess, got it. this is just too much. Right, dude, this is, you know, I can't believe, I, you know. Well, there's, there's a lot to say about tests for truth. There's almost as many tests for truth as there are things about which you make statements. And how you understand the difference in tests is very, very uh, exciting. So if I say it's raining, it's not raining, well, you, just, you can look outside. Basically, it's going to boil down to you either can, can verify it with your own senses. Well, I'm looking out a window, by the way, if, unless you think I have to. That guy had a weird tick. It's <laughs> like he had some vertigo or something. He kept leaning over during, this, during his talk. and I'm just, oh, I'm just looking out the window, pretending like I'm seeing You can look out the window and see whether it's raining or not. Or perhaps you don't have access to a window. You just trust somebody that comes in from outside. He said, well, Pastor Jeremy said it was raining and I trust him. He doesn't really, uh, he's not a liar and he doesn't have anything to gain by lying to me about raining, so I just trust him on it. And there's a lot of other things to say about tests, but I want to press on. Because not only does a worldview, when you're putting it together, you have to have the viable and correct understanding of what truth is, but also I would submit to you that there are tricky questions regarding the nature of religion. And if you will allow me for the sake of what I'm talking about this morning, I'm including us as Christians in the category of religion. Now I know a lot of Christians, I mean I've seen bumper stickers or t-shirts, uh, Chris, you know, Christianity, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. We, under, we all get that. But don't, don't let somebody, or, and don't throw away the category of religion because it's a legal, uh, designation and we protect religious liberties we don't protect necessarily relationship liberties you know now maybe someday is coming quicker than we wish that we won't even have the protection of religious liberties but at least that's our heritage as Americans for for our purposes then I'm talking religion in the sort of sociological and academic sense of Hinduism Buddhism Christianity Islam these kind of things But I submit to you that a lot of people, and this is another influence of this pragmatic theory of truth, they have what I call a functional definition or understanding of religion. What does that mean to talk about something and think of it functionally? Well, let me give you an example uh, with a spoon. Because if you tried to say to somebody, well, what is a spoon? you probably will end up just defining what a spoon is by just what it does. A spoon is just a thing that spoons. That's just what it is. That's, just, that's all it is to be a spoon, is just to be able to spoon stuff. And that's all you mean by that. Well, and that's perfectly legitimate. A lot of things, usually artificial things, like chairs or microphones, we end up defining them functionally and that's perfectly legitimate. Problem though, or a problem can, can come about, is that when, when something is defined functionally like a spoon, then the categories of true and false don't really apply, doesn't make sense. I mean, suppose you're sitting in your breakfast, okay, and you're, you're eating your uh, honey bunches of oats with almonds or something, or your honey nut cherries, whatever your favorite uh, cereal is, and, and someone comes up to you it says you're eating your breakfast cereal with a false spoon (laughs) now first of all you go what are you doing in my house at breakfast all right so get out of here I'm still in my pajamas all right but second I don't I don't think you would react by going what do you mean who are you to say I've got a false spoon this is one of those this spoon's been handed down to my family this is the truest spoon you know you wouldn't you would just go I don't even know what a false spoon is If this thing spoons from the bowl up to my mouth, that just is a spoon. That's all there is to it. Get out of here. Problem is, people think of religion that way. So they think religion is not something that the categories are true and false apply to. Rather, they mistakenly think religion is just something that performs a certain function in your life. Like hobbies almost. Gives you a sense of uh, cohesiveness in your life. It gives you a sense of connectedness with the community. It gives you a sense of being a part of something bigger than yourself. It gives you a sense of being a part of something that will continue beyond your passing. And so they think of religion in these functional terms. And I'm not denying religion might have those functional terms. But that's not what we mean as Christians when we talk about Christianity. We don't mean merely that it has these functions we mean that it is making a truth claim about the nature of reality it's either true or false so you can have a false religion in the truest sense of what a religion ought to be that's why i think a lot of times when we're trying to defend the faith or even just share our faith and we make the statement about it being true it's not that a lot of people disagree with us a lot of non-christians it's not that they disagree with us that christianity is not true they hear us as if we were saying, we have the only true spoons in the world. And everybody else's spoons are false. And they just go, okay, well, I've got a false spoon. It still gets the cereal from the bowl to my mouth. What else would I want from a spoon? And so they go merrily along their way. And you go, okay, no, no, we didn't mean it, doesn't have, it does or doesn't have a certain function. What we mean as Christians is that when we say there is a God, that's either true or false. And that can be defended. When we're saying Jesus is God in the flesh, that's either true or false, and we're saying it's true. That's the way reality is, and what he did for us is true. That's what we mean to be understood. Then if a person says, well, I don't agree with that, you go, fine, now we can have a meaningful discussion about it. But up to this point, I couldn't even have a meaningful discussion with you because you're laboring under this illusion that religion was like a hobby that we just understood functionally. And indeed, that's not not what we uh, uh, mean by religion. Now, uh, there's a lot more to say, and we'll talk about it over lunch. So let me skip ahead because I want to skip a few slides because uh, I want to get to the part where I give out $100 bills make sure we don't run out of time. I can't guarantee we'll get that far uh, in, 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 the, uh, in the presentation. So here's the punchline. We've got to help people understand that Christianity is making claims about reality. Now, have you ever heard someone say, well, if you'd have been born in India, you'd be a Hindu? The response to that is, but that doesn't make Hinduism true or false. Just because, well, the only reason I'm a Christian, I was born and reared in Mississippi or whatever, which is odd since I wasn't even raised in the church, I'm sort of a counterexample to that. But even if that was the case, they say, well, how the only reason you're a Christian is you're born in the United States. So? That doesn't it make Christianity false. It's not false, even if I have a bad reason for believing it. Because you know what else is true? Probably the only reason you believe that the sun is the center of the solar system. It's because you're born in an industrialized nation. There are places, my wife grew up in Brazil. I guarantee you there are indigenous uh, tribes in the Amazon jungle that don't believe the sun uh, is the center of the solar system. So does that make it false because I w- only believe it because I was born in, the, in America? Therefore, the sun's not the center of the solar system? You go, no. Even No matter what, why you believe something is irrelevant in a lot of cases to whether it's true or not. So don't let somebody bully you, well, the only reason you're a Christian is because you were raised in the United States. So, you know, if I'd have been born in, in, a, in, a, in the Amazon jungle and believed the earth was the center of the solar system, what would follow from that? I was born in a place where I was raised to believe something false. So if they say, well, if you've been born in, in India, you'd be Hindu, okay? So if I was born in India, I'd believe false religion. That's what that means. It has nothing to do with whether it's true or false. The, another element of building a worldview is having a a grasp and a proper understanding of the nature and relationship of faith and reason. This is a big one in the history of ideas. When you think about, well, what is faith and what is reason? I submit to you, there's a very prevalent, popular misconception about what faith and reason even are and how they relate. And that misconception has an adverse effect when we try to help people understand having faith in Christ. They misunderstand it because they're laboring under this popular misconception. Now, if you know the answer to this trivia question I'm about to ask, don't blurt it out loud. Do people blurt out loud? They, usually the time? Is that, it's usually the time. It's 1215, that's what you hear. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, I, I'm just kidding. Yeah, don't give them any ideas. Yeah, well, I was heartened by the fact that when I came here, I noticed well, there was not even a clock at the back. So they probably don't care how long you go. Lunch? Who cares about lunch? <laughs> so if you know the answer to this, just kind of keep it to yourself, but I just want to see. If you know who said this, famous American lawyer said, Faith is believing in something when common sense tells you not to. Anybody know, by the way, for sure who this is? I mean, first of all, if I said famous American lawyers, you go, okay, that narrows it down to like three. I can name three famous lawyers, perhaps. Clarence Darrow, you know, you know uh, uh, Lance Alito, or somebody like that, or Johnny Cochran, whatever. Now, I'm being a little facetious, but some, some of you think you might know, and you probably might, might be right. But that was said by Fred Gailey in Miracle on 34th Street. So some of you are laughing, nodding, because you recognize that. And that was the theme of the movie. Do you remember that, that Doris Walker is this real analytical and feet on the ground and, you know, get, get things done and, and, and intellectual. And Fred comes into her life, and he's sort of happy-go-lucky and, and uh, take, willing to take risks and, and, uh, and take chances. And so they clash as they're falling in love. They're becoming they're, they're more and more aware that they're, they have this conflict of their sort of approach to life. And of course, the, you have a parallel theme because once Doris kind of comes to her senses and realizes, yeah, there's more to life than, than, uh, you know, uh, than just uh, walking in this real analytic kind of way. And so Susie has to come to the same thing. And that's sort of the theme of the whole where they finally come around and see, yeah, you know, sometimes faith is just, you know, believing things that common sense tells you, tells you not to. And I understand the sentiment and I love the movie and these kind of things. Problem is, I don't think that is. In fact, I know that this is not a classical understanding of what faith is, even if it's a popular understanding. So to tighten the screws even more, here, see if you see this in, in circles in which you run, newspaper articles, co- commercials, political speeches, academic lectures, whatever. Here's how this misconception looks even more specifically. They juxtapose faith and reason. Faith is opinion reason is truth faith of values reason are facts and by the way fact and value is a common way to summarize this distinction in academics it's called the fact value dichotomy so if you see that some of you are students and you run across that in in theological and philosophical it's the fact value dichotomy is this whole idea uh, that I think is a misconception. Faith is inner and reason is outer. And faith is private and reason is public. Faith is emotional, reason is rational. Faith are feelings, reason is thoughts. Faith is subjective, reason is objective. Real, faith is religion, reason is science. Faith is true for me, reason is true for all. And I, I, and I think this is just prevalent to the point that it does, uh, and, and I think a lot of Christians buy into this unfortunately, and so we end up marginalizing ourselves, and that's why you have humanists and atheists and secularists say, hey, I don't mind, I don't mind you practicing your religion, just don't shove it down everybody's throat. Can you imagine somebody saying that about gravity to scientists? Well, we realize that gravity, you know, could be an exchange of gravitons. Hey, I don't care what your theory of gravity is, just don't shove it down our throat. They would never do that. they go, oh, well, that's interesting. Why do you think gravity is that way? Why do you think that's the real definition that it's an exchange of gravitons instead of some kind of gravitational wave and why, why you know but but with religion oh no you just go ahead and you know you guys just go off in the corner there and practice your religion and don't shove it on the rest it's, it's this whole idea it's just your inner subjective private you know emotional non-rational kind of way of conducting yourself and as long as you don't fly your airplanes into buildings then we'll we'll tolerate you although actually you probably know this as, as well if not better than i They're not even tolerating that anymore in our culture. So people like Sam Harris in his book, The End of Faith, who's one of the new atheists, they call themselves, uh, he thinks that there is no difference between you and those Muslim terrorists who flew the planes in the 9-11. There is no difference except maybe a matter of degree. Because the fact that you're religious is already pathological and dangerous and is a threat to the survival of the human race. That is what these guys are starting to say now. It's not even a live and let live like this misconception might even allow. So how would I juxtapose? This is sort of the classical definition of faith and reason and how they con- contrast uh, with each other in, in, the, in the church. I'm just checking my time here if my phone will come on, if it doesn't explode on me here at the pulpit. If it does, we just get out a few minutes early. Reason is believing something on the basis of demonstration. I give some examples like historical, or scientific, or mathematical. If, you, if, if somebody makes a claim, and uh, uh, you know that uh, you know, this particular chemical dissolves this particular solvent, uh, this particular solid here, and they make that claim, and you are a chemist, and you demonstrate that in the laboratory, and you believe it because you saw the demonstration, then you believe it by reason. Or if somebody said, well, um, uh, th- there is this particular event in history, and so you're a historian, and you do your research, eyewitness testimony, you know, uh, videotape surveillance, whatever it is, and you see that claim demonstrated, And that's why you believe it, then you believe it by reason. Or how about a mathematical? Suppose Andrew Wiles from Princeton University comes along and says, you know, Fermat's last theorem is actually true. You go, well, really? Yeah, well, let me see your proof. Okay, well, it's 110 pages in the annals of mathematics if you want to read it. But I proved it true. Well, if you're a mathematician and you read the proof of Fermat's last theorem in mathematics and you believe it because you saw the mathematical demonstration, you're believing it by reason. So notice, interestingly, that though reason is common in the sense that if you believe it because of the demonstration of it, then that's believing it by reason. But notice, what it means to demonstrate is different depending on the kind of thing you're talking about. A mathematical demonstration is different than a historical demonstration, which are both different from, say, a chemist chemist lab demonstration which are different from some other kind of demonstration. So different kinds of statements may have different protocols and methods to demonstrate it. That's kind of what I was harkening back to, I mean, talking about when I, uh, when I said the test for truth. So the different, you have different ways of demonstrating things, but the common ground is if I believe it because of the demonstration, then I'm believing it on the basis of reason. Now faith is believing something on the basis of authority. So I'm not a mathematician, okay? I've tried to read what I can as sort of summaries about Andrew Weil's proof uh, on Fermat's Last Theorem. And if you ever thought that math could never be exciting, try to find on YouTube the NOVA program because you can't buy it through NOVA. They, don't, they didn't publish it on DVD. But some people put the videotape on YouTube and it's just called The Proof. The Proof. If you find that, on, uh, it is on YouTube or at least it used to be and how Andrew Wiles proved Fermat's last theorem. One of the longest lasting math mysteries in the history of the human race was finally solved in the late 90s. But I'm not a mathematician, so it's lost on me. So why do I believe that Fermat's last theorem was proven to be true? Because I trust what Andrew Wiles told me because he's a mathematician. Now, I might trust somebody for the wrong reasons, Hey, that, that woman sure was attractive, so I guess I will buy that car that she's sitting on the hood of that I saw in the commercial. Okay, that'd be a stupid reason to buy a car, right? Right? Or, or, or whatever. Well, he's a celebrity, and he smokes this cigarette, or he drinks this you know, particular soft drink, or he, you know, whatever. Yeah, there can be bad reasons, more or less, to trust an authority. But the principle is, uh, if you trust what somebody tells you, then that's believing it by faith. You have faith in that person that they're telling you. Now, to be sure, to know whether they're an authority or not might take some reason. As I just said, You, you know, well, who's Andrew Weil? Well, he's one of the most great mathematicians in the world at Princeton University. Okay, well, that sounds pretty good credentials, you know? And so, yeah, reason comes into play. So let me pick an, an example here as we wind this up. Think about the, the death of Jesus on the cross before we even get to the resurrection, just the fact That Jesus died on the cross. I would submit to you that it can be demonstrated historically that Jesus was crucified. Now, don't let that be lost on you when I say historically. I I tell my students sometimes, people say, well, you know, you believe in God? Yes. Well, can you give me a mathematical proof of the existence of God? Well, no, because God's not a mathematical thing. I could give you a mathematical proof about a mathematical thing, but I can't give you a mathematical proof about a metaphysical truth which is what God's existence is. I can give you a metaphysical demonstration of it. So don't let people bully you with forcing you to try to use the wrong methods to demonstrate some kind of claim about about your faith. The fact that Jesus was crucified is a matter of history. Yes, you can demonstrate it historically according to the protocols and methods that are appropriate for historical investigation. So you can believe, one can believe, in the crucifixion by reason. But what's interesting is, I submit to you, it had to be revealed to us what was different about his death than the other two men that died. I was in some uh, mission, uh, summer mission work. And at the orientation, it was several thousand college students were all in this big room. And they said, okay, you know, you're going to be going to your respective fields. And here's one thing we want you to do. I want you just pair off with whoever's right around you. I want you to share your testimony and the gospel with each other. You know, just because you're going to be doing a lot, lot of that this summer, so you know, you just kind of okay. Well, let's just go and just go. And there was a uh, young, uh, young college girl next to me. So we, okay, well, we sit down. I said, okay, well, you you go first. And so she said, well, you know, Jesus died for our sins. I, said, let me ask, I got a question for you. What? You know, there were three people that died that day on, on on Calvary. There were three crosses there. So what makes his death any different from the other two? She's like, you know, I'm not. I'm not really sure I know how to answer that. And so that's what we spend our time talking about. But I submit to you that historically, you couldn't. There's, there's no way to tell that his death on the cross affected your eternal life. How do we know that? Because we, as Christians, believe that that's what God told us about his death. Now, can I demonstrate that in the same way I can demonstrate that he died? No. What, then what am I faced with? I have to decide, am I going to trust God when He tells me that what He did for me through Jesus Christ is going to atone for my sins? I've just got to trust Him. And that's a decision that we all have to make. Now, do I have good reasons to believe that, the, that it is God telling me that? That there is a God and that it's the God that's telling me as opposed to a God in the, of the Quran or some other word? Yes. You can use reasons and demonstrations for all those. But at some point, it just comes to this, this, this sort of precipice. You just are standing there, and you go, from this point forward, I've just got to decide whether I trust you or not. And, and he says, if you trust me, I'll give you eternal life. I'll give you my righteousness as a gift, as Romans 4, 4, and 5 say. To him who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as a debt. But to him who does not work, but believes, and the English kind of scandalizes us because... The verb believes in Greek is just the verb form of the noun faith. In Greek, they're the same word. One is just a noun and the other is a verb. But, but faith and belief have come to, into English from two different languages. So we lose that. Well, to believe as a verb is just to have faith. It's to faith in someone. Here's the thing to notice about these. The truth that Jesus died for our sins had to be revealed to us by God. Not the fact that he died, because that can be known through uh, demonstration. Notice, though, it's no less a fact than the fact that he died. They're both facts. It's just how I relate to that fact, how I discover. One, I can demonstrate if I have to demonstrate it. I mean, you might expect that on faith as well. But the other, I, I have to accept on faith because I, I can't demonstrate it. There's a lot more to say here, but hopefully uh, that suffices. Last thing I want to touch on before we, before we dismiss. And that is the nature of experience. Now, you'll have to forgive me because this is something that uh, matters a lot to me. As I take another dramatic pause. I took a class, I, I did my PhD at University of Arkansas did they, did they, I I I missed the end of the game I, I remember they were they were getting wiped away and I changed I changed the channel so anyway somebody's gonna look it up on their smartphone probably well I mean any rate and I had a professor and he uh, he he was great he was hip and young and you know he's real energetic and he'd have a water bottle in class not not like these but the kind that you know you wash and you're whatever they call those and but what he would do is he would, the thing would be sitting there and he'd be lecturing and, like that. and i'm just well, i'm taking notes and it's all like that and he'd pick that water bottle up and he'd, and he'd be talking like this and making some more points and then he'd set that bottle back down and then he'd be going and then he'd pick it back up and he's going like this and then he'd put it back to. finally i'm just all fixated on the water bottle i'm like i'm forgetting what the <laughs> class is about because i just wanted to go would you take a drink of your water bottle you're <laughs> driving me nuts so i told my students a long time ago at the seminary, and I always remind them of this, I say, if you've not had me for a class, if I ever pick up my water bottle and I start to set it down, I haven't taken a drink, you gotta go, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. You gotta take a swallow of your water before you can put it down. I say, okay, let me do that. All right, so I'll be true to, true to form here. <clears> to <throat> forgive me, because this is something that is very important to me as a philosopher, and that is the nature of experience. What do I mean by experience? What I mean in effect, is the degree to which how we can know truths about God's creation, and indeed about God Himself, through what we see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. And I think there is an unfortunate trend in contemporary Christian thinking that we've been bullied into well you know if you think knowledge is is begins in what you see here taste touch or smell you're going to become a humanist and you're going to become an evolutionist these kind of things and we've been bullied into relinquishing that ground to the scientists say so, yeah well we deal with facts and you guys deal with faith so just you know be quiet and 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 and, and we've given up a powerful tool in our arsenal to defend the truth of the Christian faith. I do a presentation called Seeing is Believing? And one of the things I try to argue there, and you can get the PowerPoint deck on the list that I showed you at the beginning, you go through your entire Bible, uh, particularly the historical narratives of the Old Testament and then then the New, New Testament, and see how often it was that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, appealed to what people could see, hear, taste, touch, and smell to prove that He's the only true God and Jesus Christ is His Son. Now, is there anything else to say about, well, what about things that you can't see, hear, taste, touch, or smell? Like like morals or logic or, you know, or even God. I can't see, hear, taste, touch, or smell God. If you're curious, at least, and maybe even beyond that interested to say, okay, so how do you start with seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, or smelling and get non-physical things like morality and logic and metaphysics and God? I'll just tell you this. That's the way it has been for most of Western civilization. Even before Christ, you go to the ancient Greeks. That's the heritage of Western civilization. So if somebody comes along and says, well, you know, you can't see, hear, taste, or touch, or smell, logic, and morals, and God, so we have to have some other conduit of knowledge because you can't get those things through th- seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, and smelling. I go, well, that'd be news to Aristotle. He thought you could get all of those from that. It'd be news to, to all the church fathers, practically. It'd be news, certainly, to most of the scholastics. And it would be news even to the Protestant reformers. It only becomes this sort of di- this divorce between trusting our experience And then uh, having these alternative ways. I'll give you one other thing to sort of uh, kind of tease you into, well, you know, I'd be curious to know a little bit more about that. You will find in the occult, I'm on on NPR, God willing, uh, Friday of next week, or this week, I guess, uh, talking about Satanism. You probably would be surprised how much in the occult, witchcraft and these things, they directly assault the viability of your senses. And I go, you know, I'm not surprised because when you look at a passage like 1 John, and John is writing to his his disciples here, and look how many sensory terms are used in his argument. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son Jesus Christ. So it's no surprise to me that enemies of the gospel of Christ would want human beings to go well you really can't trust what you see, hear, taste, touch or smell. They wouldn't want us to do that because the arguments and evidence for God's invasion in history through Jesus Christ had everything to do with what they handled, what they saw, what they heard, and and even tasted in some respects. Because, uh, you know, Norm Geiser uh, asked a congregation once, he said, you've heard a lot of sermons on the Last Supper. He said, how many sermons have you ever heard on the first breakfast? Because in Luke, Jesus after he rose from the dead Luke deliberately points out the fact that Jesus ate in front of the disciples and probably people go well why would he even tell because it proves that he was a physical resurrection wasn't just some ghost like the Jehovah's Witness wants you to think he was physically raised from the dead and he ate right there in front of them And they're just going I don't know if they were doing that or not that's what I do I just I thought he was dead he was dead well, he's not dead now, I know. He's not a ghost either. So we do this in my class, and I invite you to take a classical philosophy class from me. It's just a shameless plug, Pastor. It's just, you know, he's not going to let me have lunch now. He goes, you, you can't have an entree, you just have to eat collards. That's all you can have. <laughs> but I, I'll just, <laughs> I, I, knew I'd get a, I knew I'd get a rise after, out of Dr. Winstead back there, yeah. If it, he, I think if he knew there weren't going to be collards, he was just going to drive home last night. <laughs> but I'll just throw this out for the philosophy students, uh, just so you'll know that I'm not a total, you know, nincompoop. But this, this bad view of, of uh, trusting our senses arises out of a tradition, John Locke, uh, Bishop Barclay, and David Hume, from top to bottom. And I would just contrast them, and we do this in my class, with, uh, with the classical tradition of Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. If that means anything to you, you need therapy, basically. That's what I would say, you, know, you can get a shot for that, I think, that, that actually interests me. <sighs> okay, I'm over it now. <laughs> for just a second though, that actually was intriguing to me. So, well, what else can you say about a worldview? Uh, more than, than, uh, than you could imagine. But let me just end with encouraging you to be a steward of your mind as much as God gives you that opportunity and whatever sphere of influence he's put in your life and whatever measure of faith that he's given you, all for his glory. Not that we're puffed up with knowledge, but that we can uh, advance the cause of Christ and cause everyone around us to know and think what is true and good about our maker